All right, everybody, good morning. It is 10:19, and if I'm going to finish by 12:30, that's just two hours. I just need two hours for the message. You guys ready for an old Southern Baptist two-hour message? <laughs> I got one yes on that, so I'm going to go with no. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. Glad to be here. Exciting times at the church once again. Uh, lots of stuff happening with. I love it when Ken has so many different announcements. Like, it's like we usually like to do maybe one or two because we know we're kind of like, oh, I hear the one announcement that's for me, and then I'm kind of focused on that. But when you get seven or eight announcements, you just realize like every ministry that's popping here at the church is like, hey, can I get a shout out? Hey, can I get a shout out? I mean, baptisms and women ministries, men's ministry, camp, all these different things. And the exciting part about all this stuff for me, it means, it means we're alive. It means God's percolating again, you know? When you get those coffee grinds percolating in the morning, you get your coffee fired up. I kind of miss that about old school coffee. That K-cup's just not as exciting, really. I just put that in there. It's kind of plain. And the whole experience of throwing it away, it's just like the old days, right? The, the Sanka or whatever it was. It was like percolating, and it was almost ready, and the little lid was jiggling. And I don't know. That's just me. Maybe you're jiggling my brain or whatever. Uh, just one last thing about the, uh, the, in the back there. So the reason why we need help with the bylaws and kind of getting that situated was obviously the situation with John kind of put us in a weird situation with John's passing. Uh, we're actually short on the elders, and so we need to kind of make room for how do we get more elders on there and keep the bylaws being met. So that's what really the adjustment's about. It's just making up for the situation that we're currently in. And I think that will help us long-term to avoid any further running out of elders or something should happen like that. So if you have any questions about that, myself, Rich Rapoli's in here, glad to answer, or any of the elders can kind of walk you through with clarity. Otherwise, traditionally speaking, a church rarely, if ever, even mentions bylaws. I mean, you don't really want to adjust those or do anything to them, but just so you guys know, I wanted to clarify. Um, also, I wanted to thank Josh for last week. You guys know that in the world we're living right now, to find a, a young person who loves the Lord, I mean, Josh is also committed to playing worship. Josh also is teaching uh, our young adults. He has ministry. If you have a young adult, 18 to 28, um, he meets with them once a month. He also maintains the youth worship team, which is happening on Wednesday nights. And I can assure you that we're really close to having a youth worship band. As you guys start to see a couple of youth in the band up here this morning, you got a chance to see Dylan and different things like that. I mean, we're really close to actually giving you a chance to see a, a, a complete worship team of students. And so I just want to thank Josh and thank him. I mean, newly married, working hard, doing a lot of different things. And someone came up to me this morning and said, you know, seeing a young person on fire for the Lord, how encouraging and motivating that was. Well, that's, that's always been part of my ministry, and I'm really grateful that God's allowed me to do that. But you still have to have somebody who's willing to do that. And so Josh is not only willing and able but he's been educated and blessed by that as well. So thank you for doing that. I also want to let you know I did speak with Greg. Yeah, you give it up for Josh. Thank you, Josh. I, I uh, spoke with Greg Barone, and we are working on the details to get Greg out here. So very exciting stuff as we head towards summer and some of the other things. But uh, a former church congregant, a former parishioner, is coming back to share with you guys what God is doing. So there's an exciting story for that coming up. And then I believe next week when we get to the baptisms, uh, if all the people show up for class today that are scheduled, you do not want to miss next Sunday. If you've been waiting for a Sunday to invite somebody or do something, uh, baptism and testimonies are always just one of those things that are such a blessing for the church. 
Someone once said, you know, why are baptisms so important for the church? And I said, because the testimony that that individual gives to a, congrega- to a congregation, to a family, is so important because for a lot of them, it's the first time they get to hear their own testimony. And other people v- often resonate with other people's testimonies and can identify. So a uh, powerful time. And I promise you, if the one family shows up and gives their testimony, there's a testimony coming next week that you have not heard other than a TV show or some kind of made-for-TV drama. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most powerful family testimonies I've been involved with. I've been in ministry over 30 years, and I will say it's probably one of the top five most powerful, and I'm hands-on with this, this family. If it gets to the, to the tank next week, it's going to be it's, it's mind-altering. It's just an absolute affirmation that God's still in it, that God's still pulling for us, and that God's still winning in the midst of a really dark world around us, that God's still doing miraculous things. So super excited about that. So when I started thinking about this week, I started thinking about hunger and hunger pains. I'm at one of those stages in my life where because of my situation, I can only eat certain things, and I'm constantly finding myself really hungry. Like last week, I was hungry for the rest of the story. Like I, I didn't want Josh to stop. You know, I'm good with the two, three-hour service and keep going, whatever. Just give me more, right? And then I realized there's actually a word that speaks to my hunger issues. It's called satiated. Okay, it's a big bonus word for today. Feel you free to use that, any of you vernacular people. You can use it, satiated, and it means to be fully filled, right? And I was like, I don't know about you, but like sometimes on Sunday, I get so hungry for God's word, even studying, and as the week's going on and some of the hours get stockpiled up, it's like I can't get full of God's word. Like when I read God's word, it really fills me up. But then I go home and I'm starving, and it's late, and I can't do that, so I try like popcorn. Have you ever tried popcorn? Big mistake with popcorn, okay? Big and fluffy and it feels good. Boy, the salt just lays a whooping on me. So not only am I all bloated, but like an hour later, I'm like 10 times more hungry I was before I bloated myself and put all that salt in my system. So oatmeal, just so you know, so far the only thing I've found that works for me, uh, 10 bowls of cereal is no longer beneficial to my uh, calorie intake. But I'm just saying I'm constantly finding this need to want to eat and whatever and then I, being the person I am, I read this little scripture this week, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I thought, man, it, maybe that's the answer that I need this week, is maybe I need to start hungering for the things of God and trying to figure out a way that God can fill my void. Because if God actually has designed us to be unfulfilled unless we have God's word coming in, then what an encouragement that is for you this morning, because we're still on a book study in Acts We're going to be in this book for a while, and like every week, all I promise you is every week we're just going to read God's word, and we're going to tear it apart line by line. And then I realized what a blessing that is for me to say, you know what, church, if we hungered for the things of God, if our unfulfilled appetite was for the things of God, then what a blessing every Sunday could be to that, because part of this would be is the opportunity to fill that void that exists inside of every us that God himself has put. So that's my prayer for this morning as I get ready to pray, is that God would bless you with the encouragement and the sat, and this, this, how do you feel, satiation that comes from being full, fully full of God's word. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity to have communion at the end of service. I thank you for the opportunity to have the baptism class I'm even looking forward to next week to having an event after church. All these different things remind us that we have a great need in our heart. We have a great need in our soul 
um, that's constantly seeking to be full. And so this morning, Father, I just, I pray that you would fill those that are here. I pray that you would fill those that have decided to watch online. And even those who will listen later, Father, I pray that the encouragement that comes from the word of God would be something that truly fills this need inside of all of us, this longing to be part of this bigger family, this extended family of God. And even in this message this morning, it affirms so clearly the power of having an extended family in God to, to walk through with life, to go through all these different situations. What a blessing it is, Father. Bless this family, use this message, and may everything we continue to say and do bring honor and glory to and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, we started with uh, chapter 4 when Josh was sharing. He was talking about what happened when this man who had been lame for four years, who sat at the beautiful gate, um, was healed. And in being healed, he had the opportunity to then go and share. And as you've seen in the Bible, oftentimes when miracles occur, there's always the opportunity for that individual to go to the temple and to affirm what has happened. And many times in the scripture, we find that people don't do that. But when someone does take the miracle that God has done for them and takes it to the temple and then shares it with other people, the results of a miracle is this ongoing blessing that everyone then begins to see and begins to affirm. The problem was, as we read last week, starting in chapter 4, the religious leaders seeing this man who had been lame for 40 years dancing about and praising God in the temple, not only did it not bode well for them, but it was actually causing problems. Because inside the temple in the area they were at, people were starting to gather. And the people that are starting to gather now are all the people who are actually there for religious services. So this is exclusively a Jewish audience that's both inside the temple and ready to worship. And back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, when Josh was teaching last week, it talked about the religious leaders were greatly disturbed. Now, I don't know why they were so disturbed, but one thing I know they were disturbed at was the fact that Peter and John were gathering a crowd and that people were not only listening but beginning to respond. And the results of them listening and responding was Peter and John are then have hands laid upon them and they're physically arrested. I mean, the church is literally, what, like a week old, a few weeks old here? I mean, the church is barely getting started. This is only maybe the second event in the church's history after Pentecost. And here's Peter and John doing what? They're just sharing and explaining to everyone why this lame man who's dancing around and singing and being so jovial, why he's able to do this. And what is the charge that they actually placed against him? Verse 7 said, they wanted to know by whose name they were doing it. Now, if they haven't figured it out by now whose name they were doing it, it was the same name they'd been doing it the whole time. It was in the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus, especially Jesus of Nazareth, was an offense to them. Why? It was an offense to them because people weren't just listening, but people were starting to believe. And so, church, that's a good reminder I want to even give you before we get started. Part of the reason why people are so nervous about mentioning the name of Jesus is because if you truly do speak and invoke the name of Jesus, people will listen and you know what's beautiful about that? Some people will actually begin to believe. Not all people, because people have always been against Jesus and continue to still be against him today. But the beautiful thing is every time we invoke the name of Jesus, every time we proclaim the name of Jesus, there's the opportunity for people to hear and believe. And you know what? It made the religious leaders nervous. It made the religious leaders a little angry. And unfortunately, it still does today. But that's why he said, you know, in this life, you will have troubles, you will have trials, but take hold, I have overcome the world. So what does Peter do? Does he back off? In verse 8, it says, no, filled with that same spirit again that blew at Pentecost. That same spirit begins to move in him again. And instead of backing off, he actually says to him, 
if what I'm saying today is not a benefit to you, then let it be known to all the people of Israel. By the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. They're talking about the lame person who was healed. Now he is the stone, Jesus, referring to Jesus. He is the stone that was rejected by you, you builders, and now he's become the chief cornerstone. And salvation is in no other name under heaven and earth. I just remember, I, I talked about the boldness of Peter at Pentecost. I talked about who Peter was before Jesus actually hung on the cross. Remember, Peter's the denier. He's the liar. He's the one that running away from it all. And you see him making these passage statements. And this is like maybe the second message that he's even given publicly. And I'm thinking about even today, one of the most powerful things the church can say today. As a pastor, one of the most powerful things I could share with you today is that there is salvation in no other name. No other name under heaven and earth given by mankind for which you can be saved. Isn't that amazing that something was said as early as maybe the first or the second message ever? Even today, 2,000 years later, I mean, what could be said greater or more powerful than that? Peter doesn't back, back down. He was, in, he was powered by the Holy Spirit the first time. He's powered by the Holy Spirit again. And now he's powered this time to say, you know what? I'm going to talk to the re religious leaders and I'm not going to back down. He kept the heat on them. He kept saying to them what, he, what we have seen and what we have heard with our own eyes. We cannot, not, we cannot deny this. Now, the religious leaders were so stumped by this. Verse 13, recall, they were so stumped by these guys speaking. They, they looked at each other and said, aren't these guys uneducated? Aren't these guys untrained? And that's a reference to the fact that these guys were not trained in the Jewish schools. These guys were not trained to be religious leaders. And yet here were these two guys preaching in the Jewish synagogue. They were actually in Solomon's portico, which is just outside of the temple. They have this giant crowd of people listening to them. And the only reason they have a crowd is because this lame man that everyone, he's dancing around and singing and, and praising God. So what else could the religious leaders do? They're stumped. They're, yeah, these guys are not trained. But the result is, look at all the people listening. And now people are not only listening, but it, it records and about 5,000 people make, this, uh, just make the uh, transition into faith and make a pro uh, profession of faith. 3,000 at the first one, and now 5,000 at the second one. And I can't help but tell some of the guys I know in town, there's the church planners in town, and I'm thinking, these guys don't have church planning systems, right? These guys haven't gone to school to do church planning. These guys aren't fully funded. These guys aren't working with anyone else. I mean, all these guys are working on is this raw kind of natural feeling like we're doing something that God has called us to do. And if God has called us to do it, then what does it matter what anyone else is saying? Because the religious leaders are saying, stop. Matter of fact, not only stop, but stop saying in Jesus's name. And they're like, you guys do what's right for you, okay? But you can't ask us to do something that's not only not right for us. We know whose name it is. We saw him. He is risen. And I think people are still trying to do that today. I, I don't know about you, but I think people are still trying to intimidate. Hey, I don't mind what you do, but keep what you do out of my face. Keep it out of my space. And whatever you do, don't say the name of Jesus. And I want to assure you that in this church, as long as I have the opportunity to kind of stay and be involved with it, not only are we going to proclaim the name of Jesus, but there is no other name we can proclaim, right? Jesus needs to be proclaimed and spoken and heralded every single Sunday because there's no other power. There is no other name that someone saves. So what else do we have to offer someone if it's not for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Matter of fact, think about that. What did the early church even know? What did the early church even know? I mean, I'm calling them the early church, but it's just the first 3,000 that got saved. And now it's this new 5,000, this new seven to 10,000 people. What did they actually know? That he died, 
right? He hung on a cross, he died, and he rose again. And what they know is what they've seen, and yet they so powerfully believe. And so I'm just, I don't know, I'm a big fan of simple, and, uh, and I feel like, you know, Peter dug in, and they said, don't do this, and Peter just said, hey, you do what's right for you, but I know what I know, and there's no way I can do anything else. So with that in mind, they kind of gather around him one last time. They continue to threaten Peter and John, and then they realize something. We're making an accusation of blasphemy, but we can't even pr- prove this is blasphemy, there's nothing we can do. The people were all praising God around them. They looked at the people and they backed off and they said, we have to let them go. And I think that's just another beautiful reminder before the message even starts. Church, no matter what the situation is, no matter how dark it looks, no matter how dire it looks, no matter what the potential threat of the people around you is, if you stay focused on keeping the main thing, you proclaiming Jesus Christ, then ultimately who's responsible for your protection? right? Ultimately, who's responsible for your guidance and your, if it's insurrection they claim upon you, then who's responsible to cover you? And the word of God says that God himself will. They let him go. Everybody's praising God. And now Peter and John are free to go. And as we get ready to start the passage, I can't help about this. They just came out of this incredible opportunity to think that they're going to be arrested and all these horrible things are going to happen to them. And none of that happened. The man who's lame for 40 years is praising God. They're released. Now they have the opportunity to go do what? What are they going to go do, and why are they going to go do it? And that's today's passage, so turn with me in Acts. I'll be reading from Acts 4, 23 through 31. And uh, this is the passage, and let's read. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, They raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why were the nations insolent? Why are the people plotting in vain? The kings of earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to occur. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant it to your bondservants to speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs of wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus, and verse 31, and when they prayed in that place where they had gathered together, it was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the remainder of that passage, verses 32 through 37, is another account. It sets up next week, so we'll pick that up next week, and we'll do the last part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 next week, so you're going to want to be here for that as well. But let's jump into what happened here, okay? They get released from this really incredible situation. They have the opportunity to go to the, I'm calling it the early church because it's just this gathering of believers who are all kind of gathered in one area. And what do they, where do they want to go? Who do they want to go and be with? They want to be with fellow believers. Now, one of the things I'm sure that hopefully all of us have come to learn and appreciate after COVID is as the church continues to rebuild and gather from that a lot of people had an opportunity in COVID to realize something. Um, I remember one time when we first opened the door in the first few weeks is maybe you hadn't thought of how significant this body is, the gathering of Christ is, 
But when all of a sudden it was potentially not only taken away, but you were told you couldn't do it, how many of us had to make adjustments? And for some of us, I think we made those adjustments without really considering the repercussions of what it meant to lose that second family or that second body that's involved with our lives. Now, if you have a beautiful family and a a great marriage where you have extended family and you have the blessing of having all that, then God bless you and congratulations and enjoy that. That truly is a blessing. But for so many of us, we kind of either underestimate or undervalue the significance of our church family, right? A couple of weeks ago when we had the opportunity to do that child dedication, right? One of the things me and Sherry really wanted to explain to everybody is you can't really, we're not really much dedicating the child as much as we are purposing the parents in front of this body of extended family to say, hold this family up, hold this couple up who's going to try to train up this child in the way that they should go. It's an ominous task in the world that we live in today to try to do that. And, and we need this extended family. But not only do we need this extended family, but here's a value all of you should consider. Right now, early on in the church, Peter and John, this is maybe only the second or the third event that's happened, but they were potentially going to go to jail. They had already been arrested, right? It was looking pretty dark and dire and difficult. But as soon as they have the opportunity to celebrate, do they want to go celebrate by themselves? No, they want to bring that good word of what God has done to the body of Christ. They want to bring that encouragement and say, hey, look, everybody, this is part of the value that we have. I want you to realize just how important you are. Together, we can do something that we could never do alone. And what is it they want to do when they all get together and they have this first opportunity to do something? Someone gives some kind of powerful speech. Somebody starts some kind of crazy chant, some kind of start. No, it says simply, when they got together, they prayed. And they prayed how? Powerfully, in one voice, in one accord, in one mind to the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I guarantee you, I've shared with you before, not only do we underestimate the value of prayer often, but we totally kind of just take away the whole significance of what it does. I mean, prayer is our, our sense of weapon. Prayer is the way that we knock down the, de- the defenses of those things that are around us that are trying to knock us down. And if you have 3,000 believers from the first action of the Spirit of God at Pentecost, and now you have 5,000 new believers. Remember, you got husbands and wives, so you you got a lot more than 8,000 people. When you have this total group gathered together, and they're all praying, I mean, this is church growth on steroids. This is church, like, the way that it should be. And I wonder if if a lot of us have kind of settled in, especially after COVID, to this new kind of mundane style of what church is, right? We want to be holy. We want to be respectful. We want, like, the temple for all things to be in order. But in the same sense, we also prayed out the very power and the significance to see life change. And I think Part of what's exciting for me with a baptism service is that when you hear life change, when you hear about someone next week, hopefully he'll be there, uh, he was just doing a plumbing act for somebody in the church. He was a plumber at a local company, Brothers Plumbing, and he went to do an act for someone, and the individual invited them to church. It can be any more random than that, right? You've all had a service person at your house. Most of the time, you're just hopeful they show up and perform the act that you need done, right? That's about the gist of your conversation. But somebody in our church decided, no, this was an opportunity. God ordained that this individual would be in my house or be in my presence, and now I have the chance to share the love of God with them. He comes in, he's surrounded by a body of believers that he doesn't know, but they take him in, and they share with him a sense of of family and communion that he's never experienced before. The whole thing overwhelms him. He makes a profession of faith, and now he's at home battling with his wife and his other family members to try to share. Here's someone who's brand new and fresh in the whole thing battling, trying to share what God has actually done with them. Why? 
Because the, the power that comes from support, the power that comes from encouragement, the power to, to say, hey, this is something I'm going through in life, and I have people that I'm going through it with, is something that Peter and John are showing the church from the very beginning. Don't underestimate the value of family, friends, and our church body. One final question I want to ask you this before we move on to the second point is, so all of us are going to be going through some type of persecution. At some point in your life, you're either in it right now or you will go through some type of serious persecution. How do you plan on going through it? And once you've gone through it, who do you plan on sharing the results with? So part of this passage can give you a little bit of encouragement is you're going to face persecution. The Bible makes that perfectly clear. But one of the things I think this pattern is established from the very beginning, since this is the very beginning of the church, is when we go through persecution, know that we have people praying for us. The power of people praying for you while you're in persecution is going to do things for you that's absolutely unknown to you. And as you get to see those walls fall down and all the threats dissipate, right, we're going to do this and we're going to do this, in the end, none of that was done and they're set free, just know that you have people that you can go share it with and then you can be encouraged by the family of God that's around you. Let's move on to the next part of the passage and talk about this idea of what they did when they prayed. When they prayed, they prayed in such a way that it says they raised one voice in one mind. Now, this is a concept in the Bible called like-mindedness, and I've always been passionate kind of about this. For us to be like-minded means that we're all moving in the same direction as much as we can in the same time for the same reason. Now, this is where some of the little nuances about, well, this is important to me and this is important to me can really distract. For me, the like-mindedness that I would hope to share with this church is that there's only one great commission, right? And that's already been issued. The great commission is go, make, baptize, and teach. So it doesn't matter that there's lots of other things we could do. There's only one great commission in life. If we could just focus on going, which means as we're living every single day, making new believers and then baptizing those new believers and then teaching those new believers. what we, I feel like that kind of puts everything in order. And so what he's saying here is I have a bunch of people gathered together. They're all praying and they're praying in such a way that they're looking for one thing. Now look what they pray for. What do they pray for? Boldness and confidence to do what? To do what the Lord has commissioned to do in the face of persecution. They're starting off in persecution and they're saying that's fine. So be it. Persecution's part of it. Now, Lord, what we're asking for is boldness. And look at this opening line of their prayer, the verbiage they use. Sovereign leader. When's the last time you just kind of humbled yourself in prayer to put the Lord as your sovereign leader? Right? We just, it, this is powerful verbiage. Part of the Jewish, Jewish line, the Messianic line, is always about kingdom, right? It's always about kings. So when you, when you start by saying sovereign leader, you're really kind of putting yourself in position and recognizing who you are. I mean, today, unfortunately, with England and seeing a king and queen and kind of like they're king and queen, but they're not really over anything and they're not really in charge of anything. It's more figurative. You know, it's kind of confusing to see how that structure might have once worked. But in this early on in the church, in this position, I just picture them thinking, sovereign leader, man, you are over everything. These guys, Pontius Pilate, Herod, these guys think they're over little kingdoms. Oh, you're, you're over Judea. Oh, you're over Israel. Uh, we're not praying to the guys who are over this and that. We're praying to the guy who's over it all, right? That's such a powerful thing for me to think about it. And then they go talk about this uh, Lord of heaven and earth. Well, I should have mentioned that to Rob, that, that song, I mean, in the passage. Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, they're praying in their initial prayer a passage that was written back in Psalm 146 that David already wrote a long time ago. A priority to remind yourself, he's not just God of heaven, right? He's the God of earth. 
And it just kind of puts us in a proper position. Sometimes I think our perspective is so confused and kind of myopic about what we see and how we see it. We just kind of forget that God's over it all. He's totally in control of it all. Even the scenario that we're going through right now, even the adversity that we're going through right now, that God's over it all. It might be overwhelming to you, but thanks to 1 Corinthians 10, it's not overwhelming to him. There is no temptation come upon you for which God has not provided a way through, right? We have to just make peace with that difficulty. We have to make peace with that adversity. Yeah, but it's a, it's a long-term addiction. It's a long-term this or that. Add your own word to whatever. It might be, and it may be the thorn that like Paul's uh, you know, sight. It may be with you the rest of your life. So how do you make peace with that persecution? How do you make peace with it? You prioritize that God is over it all. And if God's over it all, we have encouragement. So how do we keep going? Verse 25, what do we need to focus on? Verse 25 says, affirm the power of the Holy Spirit, right? You have God, you have Jesus, but you have this paraclete, this one that was released to us when Jesus said, it's best for me to go. And they're like, how can it be best for you to go? We need you here. How are we going to know what we need to do? And he's like, I'm sending one to you. I'm going to send one with you that's going to walk with all of you at all times that every believer will have direct access to. And what is it that every believer has direct access to? What power is it? The power of the Holy Spirit is the ability to remember and to know, okay? If you're struggling with kind of understanding things, if you're struggling with kind of seeing the truth in your situation, then a good prayer for you this morning would just say, Holy Spirit, would you come in again and help kind of remove my thoughts from the situation and my concerns and my fears? And would you instead fill me with your spirit, fill me with your understanding? Because that is the role of the Holy Spirit. He's always to bring us back to clarity, truth about what God's word says. And that's so important to me because the reality of this passage is all these other people are going through these other emotions. It talks in this passage about people raging, the Gentiles raging, and all this other stuff, and I was curious about what they were talking about. Why do people rage? If they had the Holy Spirit, what would be different? And then I found this little comment, and one of the barns said this. In Psalms 2, 1 through 2, it talks about this rage that people have because God has anointed things, and people fight against that, so the rage refers to the idea of a person riding a horse who's bucking and throwing his head because the rider is making an effort to tame them. So uh, uh, the rider's working things out with the horse, that bridle and that bit is kind of establishing who's in control. That's kind of what's going on as people rage against God. The picture that's going on higher spiritually is we're raging against God because we're fighting for control. And in fighting for control, especially with the horse, the only thing that controls a horse is its head and its mouth. And so God is fighting that rage against us and saying, no, you can't be in control. In order for you to go where I need you to go and do what I need you to do, I have to be in control. There's also some good insight in this, that in this passage, the Gentiles refer to the Romans. So it's kind of a big picture about what's happening there. And the people who plot against God in vain, the rest of that passage is actually talking about the Jews. So there's some symbolic stuff kind of happening in the verbiage there. But all that's to say is that anyone who's trying to do the will of God without asking for the Spirit of God to lead is, is completely lost. And so that's a really good point for you this morning is like, if you're struggling kind of right now, if you feel like you're out of God's will, if you kind of feel like whatever you're going through right now, you're going through on your own and not without God's will being a part of it, then maybe back off of everything, shut your phones down, take a deep breath, uh, maybe a good time for a fast of some sort of whatever it is that's kind of filling your void and saying, okay, Spirit of God, come back into my heart, 
speak truth to me. I need the clarity about what God's will is for my life because it's you wrestling against God for control of your own life and God saying, hey, stop fighting the reins. I will drive you and get you where I need you to go, but I need you to trust me. As he works through verse 26, he wants to talk about some of the other things that are happening. He talks about the kings of the earth and why they set themselves against the Lord. And the idea of this passage goes all the way back to John 15. Uh, I wrote this down because it's a good note here. It says, Jesus specifically stated that the world will hate him. If Jesus specifically stated that the world will hate him, then he must hate his followers as well. John 15, 18 makes this perfectly clear. In the week before the crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, they will lay hands on you. They will persecute, persecute you. And they will deliver you up to synagogues and to prisons because you must be brought before the kings and governors for why, but for my name's sake. So the opportunity to be brought before a governor, the opportunity to be brought before a magistrate of some sort for the, for the, to perform the will of God is something that's God-ordained. And so he's using the scriptures to kind of teach them something, and I think this is good for us. It's like, it doesn't matter what the earth and the world says. Matter of fact, a lot of things that happened in COVID when they tried to shut down the churches, a lot of churches then kind of make um, accusations back against the state and kind of fought different things. And I've seen that now as time has gone on. They've won those cases. You can't shut down the church, right? Well, one of the things I can tell you is no matter what the world says for us to do, this is a good encouragement for us. No matter what the world says to do, no matter what the repercussions of the world is, if it supersedes what God's telling us to do, then there is a higher calling in our life for us to answer. There is a higher way that we must understand because if we're following God and the results of that is they hate us or they have disdain for us for no other apparent reason other than we follow God and we trust God, then so be it. That was established from the very beginning. And when you came to Christ, if someone said, hey, come to Christ and now you get everything you want when you need Jesus to do this and this wokeness that you see that's in the world today is it's all good without sin, without repercussions. Hey, that's not the case. When you came to Jesus, that was an offense. And now like this one brother that just made this profession of faith, he's coming out of Judaism. Believe it or not, this is going to be our fifth messianic Jew in this small little congregation that God's blessing. But he's coming out of Judaism. And trust me, if you come out of Judaism with a profession of faith in Christianity, there's some serious repercussions from your family for that, right? Not only just being kicked out and ostracized, but I mean, the stress and strain of that whole thing. And I think sometimes we kind of undersell this whole thing. It's like, well, come to Jesus and everything is good and your life is whatever. It's like, no, from the very beginning, there was repercussions for coming to faith in Jesus. And from the very beginning, there was also the risk reward of saying, yes, but if you're willing to hang it out there for Jesus, if you're willing to put it on the line for Jesus, this is also the reward. The reward is there's salvation in no other name. So I don't know about you guys, but to me, I want to be a witness to Jesus no matter what. I don't want to be a rude witness for Jesus, but I want to be a witness to Jesus no matter what. And if that means people in the world may not like me, then I've always said being a friend is always optional, right? But being faithful to Jesus is not. So for me, if, it, if my faithfulness to Jesus supersedes our ability to be friends or to, to come together on some point, then so be it. I yield to Jesus. I yield to God's word, and I would rather be a friend of Jesus than I would a friend of the world. So if some of you are trying to hang on to your friendships in the world and it's becoming kind of a struggle to you and it's kind of tearing you apart, and maybe some encouragement for you this morning is you can have people in the world that don't believe, but that it needs to be ministry. Make sure you step ministry in your faith, right? Your relationship with Christ supersedes everything else. And sometimes maybe a friendship you have in the world may have to stand down or have to be let go if it means it's, it's starting to subject your relationship with Christ. 
Moving on to verse 27, the results of this is that Herod and Pilate are kings of earth, but God is king of all. Okay? They don't know what God's plans are. They don't know that God's using all things for his will. So even sometimes the best laid plans of this government, the best laid plans of this world, you're like, well, the government's doing this, and the government's doing this, and the government's doing this. Well, one of the things I want to give you peace this morning, the government's been doing stuff from the beginning of time, right? And there was a time when we had no government. There was a time when Israel had no government. And what did they pray for? government they prayed for a king right it's like we 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 suffer the repercussions of our own wants and wills okay so we can't our hope is not in a blue state or a red state or a green state our hope is not in any colored state our hope is exclusively in jesus christ and the reality of being a follower of christ is our kings and queens and all of these public people they all are going to have their own objectives and at some point in time their objectives are going to clash with our objectives and when they come to us and say you no longer have the ability to do this or you no longer can do this we have to take a deep breath and realize, okay, for such a time as this, how do I stand in my faith, right? If they ever do come and say, you can no longer pray, if the church gets chained and they say, you can no longer come in, we might have to take a group parking lot session and say, okay, we're bolt cutters. I got a beautiful pair of bolt cutters in the tool shed. We're all going to the door right now, and we're going to cut the bolt, and whatever happens, happens. But we're not doing it to be victims so that we can stand in front of TV and go, oh, 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 persecution. We're not going to do that, right? The Bible talks about people who wear their persecution. We're going to go in there. We're going to do the service exactly the same way. Robin's going to sing. Brad's going to play the drums. Mark's going to run the tech. Somebody's going to preach. And somebody's going to say amen. Because you know what? This is what makes us us. And we're not going to change. The results of this whole thing is they don't even realize that God's will is using. God is using man. God is using donkeys. God is using all kinds of different things to, for his will to be accomplished. Don't think for one second that they're smarter or they're going to overcome or they're going to devalue life or they're going to do something in some way that's going to change the will of God. God's will is in motion. God said it. God planned it. And he said the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. And they can continue to do and think whatever they want. But verse 28 says... How dare they think that they raise their hand against what's been predestined to occur? And I know predestined is definitely one of those biblical words that has caused a lot of different counseling for me. In my time in church, the idea of predestined, like God has predestined some and not predestined others. So let me give you a quick predestined little jaunt, and we'll get back into this, but predestined, okay. So I met Jennifer, we were in college, we fall in love, and we get married. At some point of our marriage and some part of our relationship, we decide we want to have kids, and we put it in motion that someday we're going to have kids. At the, at the moment we've done that, we've predestined our kids to be born, right? But we also made a commitment, too, that we would love each other for better or for worse when we stood here and got married, right? For better or for worse, in sickness or in health, till death do we both part. Do you make that covenant today before God? And if no one stands against it, let what you've said before God not be broken, right? So we predestined those children to love. Before they were ever born, we predestined the idea that they would be raised in a godly house, that they would be raised with church as a priority, that they would be predestined to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way. Everything about they, their lives before they ever knew was predestined. But in any way did that predestiny supersede their ability to make their own decision? This is how your free will works. So this is a bonus lesson. Your free will allows you to say, hey, even though my parents purposed this and raised me in a Christian path, I can still choose a different path. Maybe you grew up on this side with two parents that had no path, maybe one parent, and they, they predestined you for a path of destruction and alcoholism, abuse, or whatever it was. Do you have to take that path? 
No, it might be the easiest path because that's what was laid for you, but do you have to choose that path? No. The beauty of our free will is we predestine both of those childs to those two paths, but the reality of what God's saying is even though you don't understand how predestined works, you were predestined to love. You were born in love. I knew you in your mother's womb. I predestined you. I know the hairs on your head. I know when, it, when you were uh, supposed to be born and when you will take your last breath, and everything about all that is love. And I want you to know something, that whatever decision you make is the decision you'll stand for. That's why the church, there's only one decision that you ultimately will stand accountable for when you stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, right? You've done a lot of things in your life. I've done a lot of things in my life. But what single decision ultimately puts you either either odds with God who's judging you or an advocacy with Jesus Christ who's now representing you? What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? right? So that's why there's only one unforgivable sin. Super bonus lesson, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been telling you from the day that you were born, there is one path. There is one way. There is one truth. I don't care that everyone tells you that all paths lead to God. That's interesting because even if you lead a cult life or some other life, at some point of your death, you still will stand before the bema seat. So there is some truth in it, but it's not the kind of truth that then says Jesus walks up alongside you and says, but wait a minute, this one's one of mine. And opens up the Lamb's Book of Life and says, oh yeah, Max, right here. John, right here. I got this guy. He's not going to stand accountable for anything. What do you mean? He's done all these different things. Then he reads Romans 8 to the Father. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. This is one of mine. The single decision that you make in your life to make a profession of faith means that it doesn't matter what the world is predetermined to try to do around you. Okay? What's been predetermined for us is love. And everything about that love allows us the give and take to kind of make the decision to go wayward, to run away and be a prodigal for a while, but then to return path to that, to that path that we know that God has brought us to. And he says, look, they can arrest Peter and John. They can tell them whatever they want to do. Oh, you're going to be this, and you're not going to say this, and you won't say Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, well, that's what you say, but that's not what we're doing. We will say Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because that's the power by what we're doing. You think, Peter, you think I'm capable of healing someone? Remember that in his first response? You guys think we did this? We can't do this. Jesus of Nazareth, the one you guys kicked to the curb, the one you refused, that's who did this, who's doing it and will continue to do it. Get your priorities straight. Verse 29. So what what did their threats do? Did their threats stop? Oh, no, we're, we're, we're under attack. Oh, the church is under attack. We shouldn't do this and this and that. Okay, church, let's have a prayer meeting. Okay, Lord, help us be more humble and be more respectful. Help us to do sermons where we don't mention Jesus' name and we don't talk about sin and we don't say anything that the Bible says that's potentially offensive and let's just water it down to such a way that it basically just feels like Richard Simmons at the pulpit, you know? (laughs) We're having one big giant feel-good session where it's like aerobics. It's like spiritual aerobics. No, this is what he says. He says, no, we are not going to pray that it stops. Instead, we're going to pray for more. If that's what it takes to stand before the kings and queens and proclaim what God has put on us, then we pray for more. And instead, we're going to pray for boldness now to speak appropriately. I don't know about you, church, but people always say, oh, uh, pastors love speaking. And we do, and we're good at it because obviously we have to do it all the time. But, you know, public speaking, this whole thing of standing before someone and saying something, Uh, I just can't do it, okay? Well, this is the reason why that you're captive in your faith and why your testimony has been locked down inside of you is because you're not praying for boldness, clarity, to say, hey, if I had it my way, I would never share my testimony. Who on God's green earth wants to hear my testimony? 
my testimony is so bland or so whatever. I mean, other people's testimony is so spectacular. That thinking is stinking thinking. That's the kind of thinking that the devil wants to keep you landlocked in so that you don't open your mouth and you don't evoke the name of Jesus. Because the moment you open your mouth and you evoke the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit then begins to speak. Right? The Holy Spirit has this opportunity to make a boldness and a clarity come. One of the things I love doing is after I do a message, on Monday when I come in, I detox my weekend by listening to the message in my office. It's not self-fulfilling nepotism on my part to hear myself preach. I just want to hear what parts of the message weren't in my notes. You know what happens every single Monday? I hear stuff that's not in my notes. And you know what's weird? I corner that with stuff that people will come up after the service and love to share. Now, I'm not an attaboy kind of person. I personally am not necessary. Oh, great message. I don't need that. But when someone comes to me and says, that thing you said, this particular part of that thing you said, my, I can't. I just my mind. And then I'll go back in because I'm in the zone Sunday. And I'm like, was that even in my notes? Right? Because we want to take advantage of thinking, I said something so clever. I wrote a lot of times not in my notes. So what is it telling me? That we are predestined by the world to think and do a lot of different things. But if we prayed for the boldness to say, hey, not only in the midst of adversity am I going to ask for more, but I'm going to bask in the adversity and say simply, that's where I should be. If I'm not being persecuted, church, if we're not being persecuted, it's probably because we're not saying anything worth hearing. I don't know. You, if you have something to say and it makes people nervous about what, remember the point is, they were listening and then they were responding. And that made the people religious leaders uncomfortable deeply disturbed if they hear what we're saying and it doesn't disturb them maybe then what we're saying is just so watered down anymore it's not it doesn't even sound like faith i'm just i'm just calling a spade a spade from what this says paul said no i will not do it i'm going to pray for a boldness that was so effective that later on when someone was in prison you guys know who right when he was in prison did he say oh lord please make the shake the jail down so i can get out of this place and the lord said oh you want a jail shake or jailbreak. No, I want a jail shake. He shook the walls of the jail and the walls crumbled and all of a sudden he was free to go. Where did he go? He stayed right there, right? Boldness is not so you can get away. Boldness is not confidence to say, 1 Corinthians 10 says there's no temptation, so now I can use it as a way for me to get out. Boldness is saying, I'm not going anywhere, but in the midst of this hailstorm that's fallen, I'm going to invite people under my umbrella and say, hey, look, it's all good. It's all good. It's water. God's going to use it, okay? Maybe it was dry ground. Somehow, someway, God's going to use it because Romans 8 says all things work together, right? Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ. If God's word says it, then I believe it. I don't have to understand it. Why do we spend so much time, by the way, trying to explain God's word? Have any of you really come up with a solution for the Trinity? Oh, it's water. It's steam. It's ice. Really? It's all that? You think it's all that? It's an egg. It's a shell. It's the yolk. It's I mean, there's some complexity, right? And doesn't he say, my ways are not your ways? My thoughts are not your thoughts? Okay, let's make peace with that as a church. There's going to be stuff that God talks about that's exclusive to what God understands. Let's make peace with the fact, though, that we know that we're sinners saved by grace, and we've been commissioned to be bold and pray in the midst of adversity. So when the jail around us crumbles, we don't crumble. Like, if we get thrown into jail, we don't crumble. Okay, if I'm in jail for doing something that God has asked me to do, then so be it. What? Now I'm going to look for people in the jail that i got to speak to. That's a different mindset of how things work, right? I'm trying to apply that in my own life. Oh, there's people in the clinic that I'm in that are not doing as well as I am. It's now a ministry opportunity, right? 
repurpose your, you know, a punishment and I'm, being, I'm in purgatory. No, you're not in punishment and you're not in purgatory. You're a follower of Christ, okay? You want to be a follower of Christ and you will be hated. You will, and if you're not being hated, then maybe you're being so kind. That's part of the struggle. Is that this is part of what we signed up for. If you don't want boldness and clarity about what to do, then stay in the comfort zone of your life and continue to not share. But if you're, share, I, if you're sharing your testimony on a regular basis, wherever you're going and whatever you're doing, struggle will continue to follow you. Verse 30 says, so what do you want us to do? Stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders. And what do they do when you do that? They throw you in jail. You're blessing them. I mean, didn't Jesus, it says in the Bible, three and a half years, Jesus did miracles. I think John says, if we recorded all the miracles that Jesus actually did, it would be volumes in itself. And yet, did they believe? So let's take a moment here. Let's jump into this whole concept of miracles. Can God still do miracles today? 100% yes. Miracles never stopped occurring. But what is the purpose or the role of a miracle? If the purpose is to walk over to Lazarus and say, yo, dead dude, wake up, that was effective, right? But did Lazarus have to die again? So was that kind to him or mean to him because the miracle of taking him out of his dead state seemed pretty miraculous? The point of the miracle is simply this. It shows the legitimacy of the power of who God is. Okay? It's a quantifier for you and I to say, hey, look, we went and prayed for Bill when he had a hole in his back and he was wearing some kind of Hoover vacuum on his back, trying to, you know, a pretty horrific situation. None of the people who prayed in that group thought we had some kind of special healing gift. What we had was a broken brother who was in need. And so we got together of our own faith and said, Lord, if it so pleases you. He's never stopped healing. He's never stopped doing any of that. But what was the point of that? So we could then put it up on the wall, the wall of miracles or some kind of place in our miracles that have occurred at our church. The point of a miracle is to strengthen the resolve of that individual if they're a believer or to draw them into faith. Okay? This guy who is leprosy for 40 years and lame, he's now singing and praising God. That sounds to me like he was drawn into faith because there's accounts in the Bible where they were healed and they didn't go to the temple. Right? So then they've wasted the whole point. The validity of that miracle is now you've wasted it. If the miracle doesn't draw them into the power of saying salvation is now what I'm under, it's been wasted. Matter of fact, does Jesus confirm Pastor Jeff's concept of miracles? Mark 1, 36, 38. Jesus replied, let us now go somewhere else to these nearby villages so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. Jesus never stopped doing miracles. It was always part of his ministry. And for a period of time, he had gifted people to do additional miracles. And today we still see miracles. But the point of what he always said and what he always did was say, it's the word of God is the miracle. Each one of our salvation then becomes a miracle. For those of you who don't believe in miracles, think about your own life. Think about what you used to be BC before Christ and think about who you are now. It's a miracle. And so that testimony that you're not sharing is your way of not substantiating the legitimacy of the salvation of your life. The legitimacy of the Holy Spirit of God could speak to you that you could come to Christ so late in life, that you could come to Christ and be baptized in your 90s, right? That you could come to Christ in the midst of that path that your parents had put before you. Each one of us have a miracle that we've seen. Each one of us have been in our car 
and seeing the light turn green and for some reason pause one second when someone runs that light and goes through it 90 miles an hour and realize every day there's a car accident where someone's not one second late. And every day someone pulls out into that flat person. And every day you've been saved, you don't even know. But maybe one day we'll get a chance to see how many times the veil was lifted and protected and that shroud was covering us. Because the point of any miracle is simply this, substantiation of God, not substantiation of an individual. If you're around someone who wants to use a miracle as an affirmation of who they are and not an affirmation of who God is, I forewarn you in advance. That's misuse of what God has appropriated. Any miracle that can still happen today, so be it. May God do it as he sees fit. But we are going to continue to pray for anyone that walks forward and is sick and is not well and whatever. Anytime they want, we are going to continue to ask because the great physician can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, so that he can be substantiated and he can be affirmed. Amen? What is the point of this first prayer? Verse 31, what was the result of the first early church with no doxology, no orthodoxy, no bylaws, no statutes and amendments. They have none of that. All they know is death, burial, and resurrection, and that Peter spoke, and they responded. What did they decide happens in this first group prayer session? The place they were gathered in together was shaken. I don't know about you, church, but I grew up Southern Baptist. I grew up so strict, cut and dry, black and white church, so piano on the right, you know, keyboard on the left, and no instruments anywhere to be found. And church was very strategic and very plain and very cut and dry. And if we would have let Josh loose in my home church, Josh, you would have, you would have killed some people. Yeah, you would have killed them. I, I, I plead with myself not to say amen or whatever it is. Or I plead with it sometimes because the reality is you can't manipulate the spirit. People try. And some people will sing a refrain sometimes six or seven or eight or nine times to try to get someone in that kind of mindset. To What are these people doing? These people are doing none of that. I don't see any of this stuff of what I see in the world today. I see zero attempt to manipulate the spirit. I see broken people coming into a true understanding of faith and just jovial. The, 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 the reality is they're just, it's a celebratory of like, can you believe what God is doing? Can you believe what God is doing? I can't believe it. Let's just thank God for what he's doing. He's doing something. I don't even know what he's doing, but he's doing something. Let's just go with that. Thank God. And they begin to pray. And I don't know if this is a worldwide earthquake or if this is just an internal shaking. But the point of it is, it's like God himself is waiting to affirm this first church. He's waiting to say, hey, look, I want you to realize something. You're not in this alone. You're not going at, it's not just us against them. It's us. It's the heavenly realm in you versus them. And it's been going on from the very beginning, from the birth of this earth that you're in. And it will be going on until your last breath, until the Lord returns. And then it's going to be amplified for a thousand years until the Lord finally says, kibosh, enough is enough. It's my earth, it's my people, and now I will rule and reign with them, and the struggle will be over. But until then, church, stop praying for peace in our land. You can pray for it and want it, I want it too, but make peace with the fact that there has been turmoil from day one. We are not under our God. It's not one nation under our God anymore. The God of this world is not our God. The country that was founded on the Bible, where the Bible was the curriculum for the school for 200 years, is not our God anymore. 
Now, we still pray earnestly and we hold fast and we can hold the flag and we can hold all that. But the world that we live in is turmoil. And they've given in to many other gods and voices. And you're going to continue to see things that are super discouraging. And you're going to continue to hear things that are just absolutely in direct opposition to what God has told us. Do not be like that. For when you start to think something in your mind and you hold that thought long enough that the very thought that you have becomes hatred towards people for the disdain they're showing God, guess what you have done? You become like them. Do not hate the things that are against us. Pray for the things that are against us. Hold fast to the fact that it's been like that from the very beginning and it will be like that to your last breath. But in the meantime, we still have a job to do. What is the job? <laughs> Go, make, baptize, and teach. If you wake up every morning and ask yourself, well, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do today. Stop saying that. I know what he wants you to do because he already said it. He wants you to go. He wants you to make. He wants you to baptize and he wants you to teach. He called it the great commission. And he followed it with the great commandment, love, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and your soul and your neighbor as yourself. For on these two things does everything hang. Church, there's going to be a lot of different things you can do today, this weekend, and they're all good and bad, different kind of things, but there's nothing better than doing this. Okay? If you do this and the building shakes and the spirit of God moves, what was the result of this first whole encounter? That people, the people that were in the, uh, the people that were in the group, all of them were filled with boldness. That's really important, okay? Because part of the Old Testament was was the individual nature of encounters with God. Think about that. Moses at the burning bush, an individual. A lot of what you see is Abraham or Isaac. The individual had the blessing. The individual had the call. And the onus was on the individual to be all that. From the birth of the church, our foundational brothers and sisters, from the birth of our congregational family, it fell on all of them. And all of them had a role. I don't think we feel that today. I don't think in 2023 as we sit here today, I don't think all of you feel the same onus that I feel when I woke up this morning to fulfill the role that God has called me in the kingdom that we're trying to build and go after. But you should, because the reality is, is that same spirit of God, that same power that filled them is available to fill all of you. And all of you can have that same role. How powerful is it? It was powerful enough that simply by praying and turning to God, they felt this physical shaking around them. Now, I know when it comes to, you know, supernatural acts, all of us get a little bit uncomfortable there, and so be it. But for any of us who've ever experienced something supernatural, I have more than a few experiences in my life where I've experienced supernatural acts in my life. I can only say this, okay? It's going on every day, all day, nonstop. It's been going on from the beginning, and it will be going on in the end. If it's not going on around you, maybe you're just in a situation where you're just not evoking the name or promoting the name of Christ to, to be part of the attack. But when it does come your way, and it does tap you on the shoulder, you have nothing to fear. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Too, too many of you are concerned about being smart in the eyes of the world. And I just want to finish with that. If you want to be smart somewhere, be smart and wise in the eyes of the Lord. And that posture fear, remember, it's not, oh, fear, I fear you. It's reverential awe. So it's the, it's the substrating of yourself positioning. It's the prayer position to 
fold yourself down and say, Lord, only you control the soul. Lord, only you can do to someone's soul for eternity something that has significance forever. That is what I will fear. In light of that fear, whatever the results is, I accept. And he says, okay, for that posture and for that mindset, the faithfulness that you're showing, you're going to move mountains. What are you going to move mountains with? Don't have a lot left, Pastor Jeff. I'm pretty worn out. I'm pretty tired. Okay. But if you have the faith of a mustard seed, right? It used to be back in the 70s and 80s, the Maranatha days, right? Where you had the little glass jar. Remember that one? It was such a popular jewelry item. And it was just, it looked like gold nuggets, right? It was just, so, but it wasn't. It was just a jar, a little micro jar with a few mustard seeds in it. And everyone used to love to wear it. I miss that. It reminds me of something, especially going into communion for today. What does God ultimately value? Quantity or quality? And think about what's been purposed, church, to us as we get, as we sit here today, what has the world told us is the most valuable thing? And we labor so we can add more stuff to our garage. Now we're in the middle of a remodel, and I can tell you this, eight weeks ago I put stuff in a box, I never touched it. Eight weeks later, I still haven't touched it. You know what the problem was? I couldn't put the stuff in my house into my garage. You know why? Because there's stuff in my garage I still haven't touched. So what I do, I tell my wife, I'm going to the thrift store. I'm going to donate it. Go for it. She said, I want all brand new stuff. <laughs> That's not what I was signing up for. I was kind of hoping we could wash a few things. But, but you know what? If you haven't used it in a year, what is the possibility you're not going to use it in another year? Because you have bought in. You. I'm, I'm looking at you. We have bought in, okay, to the lie that what we need to do is work harder manipulate things when it's not going our way, fudge and finesse on that paperwork here so we can have more. And then with the more, we can get more stuff. And somehow that void I talked about at the beginning of church, that unfillable void that popcorn just doesn't work for, we can just fill it with more stuff. Chinese food just came to mind. I can eat his Chinese food, orange chicken, I can eat bowls of that stuff. An hour later, fully starving. <laughs> fully starving, as though I've never eaten anything, Right? Because it's just stuff, and it's, it's fluff. It's not substance. And we're filling, and we're filling, and we're filling, and we're filling. Now we got overflow. And now we're boxing, and we're boxing, and we're stuffing, and we're stuffing. And we get home, and we're like, oh, how was work? I was so tired. I just can't do anything. I was working in the garage all day. What were we working? Moving boxes. <laughs> Take some of those boxes the next time, put them in your car, drive straight to the Goodwill, and let those boxes go. Because Jesus said, you want to follow me? Do you want to follow me? Sell every one of your boxes. Take your walking stick, your inner and your outer, which is nice because you only had two garments back then, by the way. The inner was like your underwear garment, right? And your outer was your jacket. He let him keep both. He didn't say you only get your inner, right? Not rude or crude. I'm just saying. He said, keep your inner and your outer and your stick. And what? Follow me. Church, these kind of early messages for me remind me. We're, we're chasing stuff. We're chasing parked cars, and we're smashing our face into parked cars, and then we're all dumbfounded looking at each other going, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I got a headache, and I just ran into another park. What are we doing? Does anyone know what we're doing and why we're doing it? Because we've always done it. This is what we do. I can't do it anymore. I won't do it anymore. I read this. They didn't know anything. They didn't have bylaws. They didn't have denominations. They didn't have nothing. 
They had a simple, clear path of what God wanted, and they did it. And the results of it was non-denominational worship at such a level that God shook their building and said, you go, I got this, and I got you as well. That's what I want. I want to see the church grow again. I want to see the seats fill up again. I want to see people get baptized again because I know the world is going to get worse around us, but I want to see us get better. I don't want to see us get worse because the, church, the world is worse and we're just, we're just mirroring what we're seeing in the world around us. That's not what we were called to do. We were called to be salt. We were called to be light. In other words, in a world that is dark. And the way that we can do that is this. His death his burial, his resurrection, and your salvation is sufficient for you to start talking. Stop gathering, stop going after the unattainable, the unsatiated world's way, and start working with what God has given you. That's where the true fulfillment of your life is going to be. Walk somebody out of the darkness. Walk somebody through a trial. Don't be an enabler anymore. Cut the enabling. I've had to deal with people, people that I love, people that I miss, friendships that I would... If I could have them back, I would. Well, I just can't be, the, I can't be an enabler. I just can't see what God's word is calling me to do and then willingly allow someone to do something that's in opposition of God and then continue to be part of that ongoing prayer like, God, work it out. God, make it right. I just can't. I won't. And the results of that is, I'm asking you to join with this. There is salvation in no other name. Did you catch that? He said that in the beginning. There's no reason for us to come up with a new phrase. There is salvation in no other name. I'm sorry if it offends you that I say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus is saying it, not me. The last thing you want to do is be mad at me. Who am I to you? What can I do to you? But Jesus, he controls your soul. And one day you will answer for your decision about Jesus. And that's a consideration you may want to make. I'm going to call the band back up here as we get ready for communion. And ask you guys to make one final consideration. What do you want to be the main thing in your life if you want it to be jesus it comes with repercussions if someone didn't tell you that from the beginning then let me apologize for every former pastor preacher and teacher that has gone before you that sold you to come to jesus and everything super cool and no more problems will happen when you made a profession of faith you made a profession of faith to join a side that was going to be attacked relentlessly for all of eternity the difference is the life that you're now living is a life that's worth living, right? A life of high challenge means a life of high reward. And so every one of you that has a prodigal that's still praying for a prodigal, but every one of you has had your prodigal return, you know what I'm talking about, right? When the prodigal was away, the father didn't stop living. He continued to live with the sons that God had gave him. I'm sure that as he continued to live with them, he continued to pray. But as soon as he saw that prodigal at a distance coming towards him, Everything else just went away. We're laboring the worthwhile labor. We're fighting the good fight. But there's a lot of corn that's ready to be picked, and the laborers are just few. And so as we stand and we look at the fields, we're like, the gleaning opportunity is massive, guy. The world around us, every single time the world around you continues to fail and let you down, they're just saying, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's on the sideline waiting to be called in calling all believers you're all being called all believers in get in the game pray for boldness pray for confidence like they did 
These were untrained men. The religious leaders affirmed it. These guys are untrained and un unchurched. How do they know this? They didn't. What they knew was the Spirit of God would lead. It was good enough for them. It should be good enough for you. And so this morning as we prepare for communion, I want you to go back to the mustard seed. Let's just think about the mustard seed. This little communion bread and this little communion cup seems so insignificant and small. But is it a representation of something that's so much bigger? It is. And so in this little cup and this little bread as you come get them this morning, remember this. Purity matters to God. Because with purity, you can look at a mountain and say, in the name of Jesus, move. You can't do that any other way. But in our world, the world that we're called to, not of this world, we're called to have that mustard seed and look at those spiritual mountains. Divorce, abuse, cancer, alcoholism, whatever that mountain is that stands before you and say, in the name of Jesus, move. You don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. What I do know, death burial and resurrection was good enough for them and I pray this morning that as you come and join me for communion that it would be good enough for you would you please come forward those who are serving can you come forward I know that your names were written down but now you're looking at me Joyce and Rich no no one knows Byron and Diane can you come up and do left Joyce okay would you please come Spirit like water
honestly love communion and uh, and yet every time I do communion there's the thought of what this actually is I wish I could just say it's boudin sourdough bread and tastes delicious or wherever it is that the Lazars provide us with but I don't know I just whether it was a cracker a wafer a bread piece of any form it's always been more it's so much more it's your substance it's your reminder it used to be the table in front of communion said do this in remembrance of me right church we we've accepted a lot of different things we we do a lot of different things now that we don't have to do there's only a couple of things that we have to do and when we do this we're reminded that we're supposed to do this in remembrance of him and so i pray this morning and i want to pray over this right now you don't have to do this you get to do this and every time you get to do this you get to remind yourself you were never worthy you're never going to be worthy but he says you're worthy and so that's what we need to make peace with this morning father god as we prepare our hearts to take this bread just pray that you would be with every individual that's about to place this in their mouth under the pretense of somehow struggling with who they are or what they become your word is a lamp unto our feet father it's it's honey on my lips and this bread is such a powerful reminder that we were never going to be sufficient without you thank you for leaving this tangible reminder for us your church this body so that we could do this every time we do in remembrance of you take and eat cup I'm sure when it passed it was just regular table fare for 2,000 years ago a shared vessel that many of them had probably drank from before but on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took that same vessel and he said don't look at this cup the same way anymore for tonight this cup means something new to you it's a new covenant that completes the old one. A covenant you could never complete. And yet in my blood, there is now forgiveness of sins. And in my blood, there's no more covering of them. They are white as snow. And every time you take this, and you drink this small little tangible reminder, you're reminding yourself that you are in no condemnation for those in Christ. Let your past go. Let your sins go and receive the forgiveness that comes every time this touches your lips. That you could realize you have work to do. We need you. 
The world needs you. Your family needs you. Your marriage needs you. And you can only do this because he did this for us. Take and drink. Father God, as we close this service, as we close this opportunity of the day, I'm just reminded by these forefathers of faith how they were growing the church and making things happen without any of the encumbrance that so much of us feel today has become status quo. We've loaded ourselves down with expectation, with previous rules and regulations, with mandates of all these other things that we're supposed to do if we're good believers. And Father, today I just pray that we would just let that go. There is none righteous. No, not one. But thank God you're righteous. And thank God in your righteousness we have hope. And if there's anyone in this building today that does not know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth hung on that cross willingly to pay for our sins, to provide a way when there was none. If anyone listening today is feeling the hopelessness of a life without Christ, may the body of Christ gathered here today and the body of Christ gathered everywhere here today remind them that we have family. We have family that supersedes our own God-given family that stands for encouragement, that stands for support, and will rally around us with prayer. And as I even pray this morning, Father, I pray that we are in one accord, in one heart, in one mind, and that you would bring those lost people to our hearts and minds right now, Father, that we would make this commitment to bring them to church and to bring them to salvation, to share our testimony and boldly proclaim, regardless of the cost or the repercussions of how the world will see this. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for church boldness. In the name of Jesus, I pray for confidence. Stop being afraid. What can man do to you? But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May we be wise beyond our days. May this service not end today, Father, if there's anyone that needs prayer. And may we return again with the encouragement that you, Father, continue to go with us, that wherever we go, whatever we do, we are never alone. We do it all, we proclaim it all in the name above all names, your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you want a prayer, if you guys do want prayer, thank you guys. I'm going to stay for a while. I'll be up here. Um, baptism class will be across the street in about 20 minutes. It's going to be upstairs in the conference room in the main office. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. The prayer boxes and the things are in the back, in the back, those four little white boxes. God bless, and we'll see you all next week. Have a blessed weekend.